You know, the message that kicked off, or as Pastor Wade likes to say, cranked off this whole series was called Judah and his brothers. Now, such an interesting concept. We've learned so many things since this sermon series was cranked off that it would be impossible to recap all of the things that we've learned. However, we do have a list for you of the nine messages that comprise this series, along with our tenth and final message on the subject. Y'all ready? Yeah. Sound booth. There we go. We got it on the screen. You guys can see we've worked from Judah and his brothers all the way down to our eleventh, which is our sermon title today, Twelve Brothers. It's easy to get overwhelmed in the details of any situation, and especially as many hours of teaching is currently on that slide. It is often useful for us to simplify things by asking two questions. The first being, where have I come from? Where have I come from? The second question being, where am I going? Saints, this is not only scriptural, but it often brings clarity to the next action that is needed on your path. So two questions to help you find clarity on your path. Let's look at this in John 13, beginning in verse 3. And somebody say 12 brothers when you get there. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. So you can see in this passage that Jesus knew where he had come from. Is that true? Yes. You can see in this passage that Jesus knew where he was going. Is that true? Yes. This seemed to bring absolute clarity to our king in the next step that he needed to take. So this morning, we'd like to start by acknowledging where our sermon series has started, i.e., where we have come from together. Then we can tell you where we are going. Finally, you'll know with clarity, with certainty, the next step that you must take. So beginning with where we have come from. Number one, we are Judah and the brothers. Not Joseph. We are not the innocent lamb, the victim of the story who God saved anyway. No, we were those brothers that were morally corrupt and in need of redemption. Number two, the brothers had equally beautiful promises. Does anybody remember seeing that in Genesis 49? Yeah. But they were unable to see them because of a misplaced enmity, Nicaragina. We Giant continued brother. in those sermon series to learn that the real problem is the brothers misunderstood their father. Anybody remember that? Favor for one brother actually takes nothing away from the other brothers. The father loved all of his sons and had a blessing for each of them. This was not a limited, finite number of slices in a pie. So that if your brother beat you to the pie, you didn't get any. That is a misunderstanding of our father. 
Gideon, you with me today? It's like taking eight donuts out of a box, but the whole box never goes empty. Isn't that good news? So look, the fourth, the fourth thing that we learned is that the brothers had works prepared in advance for them all to do. But they seem to begrudge the generosity of the father towards one brother. Wow, did we learn that we need to be careful about those things? Continuing to our next slide, the fifth thing. No brother should ever say, never, church. No, no, not. Not ever should profit off the misfortune of another brother. Look, we got to interact with some things. I mean, like those conversations that are sliding a brother to make yourself look a little better in contrast. The charging of interest. What do we mean by that? The uh, mistakes that have been made in the past that you're requiring someone to still own up to. I mean, like those kind of conversations with your spouse where something she did three years ago, I'm still reminding her of because I find it convenient in this moment or to my profit. When we're considering unfavorable comparisons, this often looked like, well, Pastor Eric, I loved it when you preached. I understood it when you preached. You brought so much clarity to my life. But when that Judah preached, I had no idea what he was talking about. Now, while that may be a fair assessment, lies, that kind of practice will always plunge you into darkness and prevent you from being able to receive the blessing of the Father that he already has for you. Our sixth is that only when brothers take on the desire of their father that you can be delivered from misplaced enmity, darkness, and slavery. Yeah, so our seventh, we summarized in this way. When you take on the desires of your father for your brother's blessing, you were desiring your brothers to be blessed. The blessing your father has for you starts to become crystal clear. Come on. So how do we gain a better view of our future? By fighting for our brother's future. How do we better understand the ways in which God has enriched us and blessed us? By helping our brothers see their enrichment and their blessing. So let's answer the question. Where have we come from? I think I might summarize it like this. We as a church have come from repentance over misunderstanding our father. We now know that he has a blessing for each one of us that can only be rightly seen if we are fighting for the advancement of our brothers. So saints, now that we clearly know where we have come from, it's time to discuss where we are going. So our next slide, we are going to learn to implement the will of our father by increasing his government on earth through the unified brotherhood that fights for the blessing of our brothers. Anybody like to know where you're heading on a trip? Saints, just like we read earlier, this is our destination. What's the title of our message? Twelve brothers. brothers. So let's go to our first passage in Genesis. And uh, this happens to be where our very first message ended. So we're going to pick up in Genesis 49 and verse 1. And go ahead and call out 12 brothers. Hey, Gabe, it's like four brothers, only better. 
Yeah? All right, Genesis 49, 1. Then Jacob called to his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Now, it may seem fairly, fairly pashat to read this verse, but you, you need to remember, these brothers labored under a deception that their father had only one blessing, and it had already gone to Joseph. And they did that for years. Do y'all remember that? Genesis 49 actually details a blessing for each of the 12 brothers that they had only been unaware of because of their own deception. It was after reconciliation and restoration with Joseph that the blessing that was pre-existent suddenly became visible to all 12 brothers. It was verbalized. It was written in the word of God. And what God had determined in the heavens when he laid the foundation of the earth was suddenly understood by them. Each of the 12 blessings would become the corporate blessing of Israel. And all 12 would need to be fought for throughout the history of Israel. In fact, none of them would receive the total fulfillment within their own lifetimes. The blessing would play out over time and through a unified struggle to become what God called the brothers to be. Namely, one corporate entity that acts as a prince with God. Twelve brothers, one nation, one prince with God. Saints, are you catching that there are historical applications to the blessing? He is blessing his actual sons. But there's also an ongoing nature of these blessings as the corporate body of Israel is being developed. Now, we could spend all day going through each of the blessings because of those ramifications. But to be frank, we have a long road trip ahead of us. And this message is already going to be long. Yeah. So we're not going to go through each of the 12. However, the blessing over Judah. Now, when you're considering the blessing of Judah, remember, Judah is the one who first suggested selling Joseph to the Ishmaelites. You guys remember that? So the blessing over Judah, the one who recommended that his brother be sold into slavery, well, it's an astounding example of the hidden blessing that could only be seen after reconciliation and restoration with all 12 brothers. Now, I know you're getting it because you're a smart group, but this, this was 11 messages ago. So, so we just want to drill down on it for you for a second. The very brother who first suggested selling out Joseph to the Ishmaelites has this blessing in the mind of God within the heart and soul of his father the whole time, but he does not know it until reconciliation occurs, which ought to cause you to reflect on what blessings there are in your life from your father preordained from the beginning of time that we might not be able to see until we learn to fight for our brothers. Come on. Would you like to hear the blessing that was preexistent? Jealous of Joseph, but you have this blessing and you just don't know it. Picking up in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So once again, 
We really could spend all morning developing this. It carries into the book of Revelation. But we are not going to do that because we want to favor a specific truth. Namely, the favor of the father that was on Joseph. It in no way infringed upon, diminished, or removed the intended blessing for Judah. You guys catching this? The favor that the father had on Joseph in the beginning did not infringe upon, did not diminish, or remove the intended blessing for Judah. Now there's a truth, though, that we need to make sure we walk away with. The truth is that the only thing working against Judah was his own actions. The actions of disparaging his brother. His own actions caused his life to descend into a veritable hell on earth called Genesis 38. I mean, you couldn't even walk in your own tent without wearing shoes. It was so bad. His wife died. His sons died. And the culmination of the entire story is that he handled himself in an improper fashion with his daughter-in-law. You guys remember how ugly Genesis 38 was? I had a real time hard time reading it in the ESV. (laughs) With that in mind, that misplaced enmity was his biggest adversary. But however, as soon as Judah took on the desire of his father to fight for Benjamin, then the story proceeds to the restoration of all 12 brothers. The shocking reality is that Judah always had a blessing equal to or even greater than Joseph. But he was blinded to it because of his own sinful condition. When this sin was dealt with, all 12, all 12 brothers were blessed and brought back into right relationship, not with just with Joseph, but with their father, all unified again. How many of the brothers ended up blessed? All 12. How many of the brothers ended up in right relationship with their father? Friends, that's good news. Especially since we started this whole thing by realizing we are Judah and the brothers. The ones that needed to be reconciled. Let's look at Deuteronomy 33, understanding that this is occurring centuries after the events of Genesis 49. Deuteronomy 33, beginning in verse 1. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. When Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob, thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun. When the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. How many of the tribes? All. All. Notice that each of the 12 brothers became tribes that made up one nation called Israel. Every brother had a blessing. And made up an essential part of Adonai's plan. Everybody had a part in the plan. Are you getting it? Twelve parts of the plan. The Lord was king over the twelve brothers or tribes. That made up the prince with God nation. None were left out. None were expendable. 
Does that speak any message to you? None of you will be left out. None of you are expendable. Everybody has a part in this plan. The assembly of Jacob was the sons of Jacob. They are called loved. They are called holy ones. They received divine instruction. They followed in the steps of Adonai as their king. Deuteronomy 33, just like our Genesis 49 passage, goes on to pronounce even more blessings over all 12 brothers or tribes. Saints, as you're considering this, the 12 tribes are continually presented as a family. The assembly of Jacob is those who proceeded from Jacob, namely the 12 sons. Now, we want to move into the prophets with you and continue to develop this concept. But first, we'd like to share a selection from the Psalms with you. This is Psalm 22, beginning in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. To my bros! In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring or children of Jacob. Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Throughout this story, throughout the history of these 12 brothers, singular tribes, well, they were all bound over to sin and veered from the path. We don't have time to enumerate it, but if you prefer Joseph in Genesis, you may not prefer Joseph later on in Israel's history. Every one of them veered from the path, but in fact, none of them were able to continuously walk in uprightness. Uh, nobody in here can relate to that, right? Well, how is it that y'all are quiet? Uh, can you relate to that or not? What this does is it paints a picture. It's a story of a righteous God with 12 brothers. Each of the brothers need and receive mercy. Every one of them from the Father. Somebody, that's good news. One of the ways that the mercy appears is that a brother in unfaithfulness is confronted by a brother who is standing in faithfulness. Yeah. See, these 12 brothers or tribes, they were interdependent upon one another. And they were called to one singular destiny that could not be obtained without all 12 brothers or tribes operating in unity and righteousness. Now that's a bit of a mouthful. So we want to do it for you again. None of the 12 walked perfectly. They each had moments in their history where they screwed it up beyond all recognition. Each time a tribe was foobar in that way... The other tribes helped them get right. And there's a reason for that, one that you should understand from your team unity meetings. All 12 tribes shared the exact same destiny. They were called to be the princely nation with God. They could only do it together. Their destinies were commingled and interdependent upon one another, so they were responsible to one another. When you're considering this, you New Testament Christians... It is almost like they form one body together. All 12 parts are part of an interdependent organism. One part of one body that all needs the parts to function. It's also almost as if a first century rabbi 
in some obscure work that no one has ever read before, that has been unearthed in Qumran, called 1 Corinthians, that details this kind of pattern and the way the body of Christ should operate. Yeah, I downloaded a new Logos package where yes. it had all of the ancient literature, and I read this statement. You, you might have it from 1 Corinthians. You are not independent of one another. You form one body. Look, if your section of the Dead Sea Scrolls doesn't have 1 Corinthians, then maybe you read it in Ephesians 4. The good news is this is such a powerful truth that it is spread throughout the Bible. Just in case you have a missing page, you will not be the missing part of the body. <laughs> We're going to get into the prophets now. And we'll be picking up in the teenage phase in the development of the 12 brothers. Any parents out there feel me? See, it takes place during the book of the judges. And, well, Benjamin, Benjamin's been particularly naughty. I mean, kind of disgustingly naughty. Judges 20 and verse 18. Are y'all there? Yeah. yeah, you can see it on the screen. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God. That's a good thing. Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? Anybody see a glaring problem so far? There are 12 brothers. 11 of them are asking, which of us is going to go up to fight with Benjamin? There's a reason for that. And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. This passage deals with 12 brothers that are tribes, and one of them is in teenage naughtiness, like nastiness, sexual immorality. And the other 11 brothers know that it has to be confronted because they share a common destiny and they can't get there without each other. So it demands that it be addressed. Now, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Benjamin was the one favored by Joseph in Genesis. Do y'all remember that? Like in the messages, you've heard the pastors and, and anointed teachers tell you he received five times as much food, five times, five times as many sets of clothing. He received 300 shekels of silver, an amount that seems to exceed all of his brothers. However, at this point in history, Benjamin is the one that is sexually immoral, and it is appalling to his brothers. If you've ever read Judges 20, it should be appalling to anyone, right? Adonai directs Judah to be the first in disciplining Benjamin's descendants. They're all going to do it, but Judah is the one that has to lead the way. My, 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 how each brother gets their turn at being in need of discipline. Remember, our whole series started with Judah's life descending into a veritable hell and defined by some sexual immorality. Yep. Judah was the one on the receiving end in Genesis. Now he's the one who is going to lead the way in the correction of Benjamin. Can you say that we're all going to need mercy at some point? Yeah. We're all going to need restoration at some point? Yeah. Any of you brothers currently involved in what some of you call tough meetings, team unity formation? I don't know what to think about that an acronym. I hope they're anything other than tough. I hope they're a blessing. I hope they're building you. <laughs> if they're not, I have like just a few words for you. Stop sinning. Yeah. So 
You ought to be able to sympathize with the concept that every brother at the table is eventually going to need his brothers to both aid him in discipline and be an instrument of God's mercy towards them. If you haven't sat in that seat yet, you are probably not being honest with your brothers and need to work on your mashlomka. <laughs> I hope you're beginning to interact with this today. Look, we're going to pick up in chapter 21 in the same story. And it's worth noting that Judah had... They're all wondering whether we know what happened in their team unity meetings. That's, that's what's going on. Just assume that we do. It's worth noting that Judah had to go first, as was mentioned before. But was it just Judah had to go fight? No. No, every brother or tribe was called to participate in the correction of Benjamin. This was a family affair. We don't want to belabor this point, but, you know, y'all have that kind of glazed look like, you know, this is not going to be a John 3.16 message. And I want to make sure that, that, <laughs> that you're getting this. The one who had been guilty in his history, now restored, has to go fight to bring his brother to a place of discipline so that he can be restored. Man, that's, well, that's our story. <laughs> and it's why we don't go arrogantly. It's why we don't go as one who is not subject to sin ourselves. It's why we do our best to restore gently. You who are spiritual, restore them gently because you know that you've had your turn in the same seat and may again have your turn in that seat despite your best efforts. Oh, goodness. Verse 13. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin. So when we say the whole congregation here, who are we referring to? Twelve brothers. Except it's not. It's eleven brothers. That's true. Because one is in sin. So the whole congregation being the brothers who are currently in right standing sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the Rock of Ramon and proclaimed Peace to them. See, we've had a battle take place. That you already enumerated Judah's going first, but they all had to fight. Now that they've been thoroughly, effectively disciplined to the point where they're few in number, the 11 brothers do not leave them in that condition. They proclaim shalom to them. Come on, somebody. And Benjamin returned at that time. Saints, there is a gospel truth in this. One that is for primarily, first and foremost, the 12 tribes. No matter how much discipline has transpired, the goal of God and the goal of the brotherhood is always for that tribe to return. But isn't there something in this that we need to gain as a body? Look, it goes on and it says, And they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead. But there were not enough for them we got a problem going on. These men now need wives after the desolation. And verse 15 tells you why. And the people had compassion on Benjamin. Who are the people? These are the 11 tribes who participated in the discipline. Are now moved by God with compassion for their brother tribe, Benjamin. Because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Look, Benjamin's behavior was disgusting. And the whole comfort congregation directly, boldly confronted the sinful behavior. But this essential brother, this essential brother could not just be left out. 
Now that the discipline had happened, the brotherhood is proclaiming shalom in one unified fashion, saying, come be united with us and be united with God. Now that that sinful behavior is corrected and no longer existent in you. Benjamin returned to the right order of God. That is right order with his 11 brothers. The sin, it had taken a severely heavy toll on him as a tribe. And even put him in open warfare with his brothers. But as the text said, Benjamin returned at that time. Look, my God, those are precious words. Those are precious words that are worth fighting for. Discipline, confrontation, warfare with brothers so that they might return. All right, now it's a bit of an inside joke, but this corner of the room over here will get it. The Asian put down the hammer. Now it's time to, to, to make peace, right? <laughs> got a homeless blood yeah, they on had him. a little confrontation the other day, and Wade got somebody's blood on him. And I've always heard that there's life in the blood, but if you don't know if the homeless man has AIDS or not, there could be death in the blood. Listen, these are beautiful words. Benjamin returned at that time. Come on. You should yearn for that with all of your heart. When one brother is in disgusting sin and the other brothers have to go to address it, the goal is to definitely address it, but to see that brother return. They cannot complete their destiny without each other. The point of this agonizing story is that there can be no breach left in Israel. Carlos, you hear me? No breaches are allowed to be left in the 12 brothers. Breaches will ruin your britches. I think that's how the etymology of those words go. Linguistically associated. The 12 brothers share one destiny or one set of britches, if you will, and it's not possible for there to be a breach with one tribe and all tribes receive what was promised. Can I pick up with you in verse 16? Are you going to actually go with me or are you zoned out thinking about? Okay. So, verse 16. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin. I think it's obvious. You have given him a white woman. (laughs) Yeah. But there was only one to give. You know? Look. And they said... There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Do you hear their concern? Notice that the concern of the elders is there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin. Not there should be, not we hope, there must Must be. be an inheritance. They recognized that all 12 brothers were bound to the same destiny. None could be lost. And none were expendable. Isn't that the view we should have of the brotherhood? We learned weeks ago that the good fortune of your brother takes nothing away from you. Amen? Amen. The good fortune of your brother takes nothing away from you. Now, now, you are learning that your brother's misfortune can definitely take something away from you. Do you hear how the converse works your brother not getting his blessings can delay you from walking in yours because we are a corporate body and nobody's independent of each other church when you realize this you'll begin to fight for your brother 
or even fight with your brother. Whatever it takes that he will inherit his blessing. Do you see where the motivation is? It's not to prosecute your brother. It is that if your brother doesn't get his blessing, there is a huge chance you will not either. We share a destiny. None of the 12 brothers will receive what has been promised unless all 12 receive it. Come on. Our destinies are linked in this way. We're going to have to learn to fight for our brother's blessing, whether that means fighting to discipline them or fighting to restore them. Both are necessary. Saints, at this point, we're confident that you're starting to come along with us, that you're grasping the desperate need. So I'm going to go ahead and move to a psalm before we go to our next prophet. We're going to read from Psalm 68, verse 24 through 28. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation. The Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. Catch verse 27. There is Benjamin, the least of them, in the lead. In the lead! The princes of Judah and their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. 28. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Thanks. We want you to reflect on this for just a minute. Benjamin, who was a great transgressor in the book of Judges. I mean, Judges 19, 20, and 21 is a horrific event. Who also had to be corrected by all of his brothers, starting with Judah. And remember, Judah was the one who was corrected in Genesis. Do you begin to see a pattern of correction and restoration that's at work between all of the brothers? It's almost like he's bound all men over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. So Benjamin, who is the worst of the brothers in the teenage phase, if you will, the book of Judges. <laughs> Nasty. Is now leading the procession and the princes of Judah, of Naphtali, they're following Benjamin, who is at the lead. Saints, can we say this morning that we need our brothers and none are expendable no matter how bad a particular moment is? Amen. Would you ever have expected Benjamin to end up taking the lead? No. It's not because he was the biggest. It's not because he was the best. It's because he had received mercy and displayed the favor of God, and now he's leading them all. Now there's a larger picture, one that is from the mind of the father of the twelve that you need to gain. Every brother is needed in the government of God on the earth. See, by the way, if Benjamin had been allowed to fall away, what would have happened in the days of Esther? Huh? Remember Mordecai, who happened to be from the tribe of Benjamin and saved the annihilation of all the other 12 brothers? See, additionally, where would uh, we Gentiles be? I mean, uh, us who have goat-worshipping ancestors who were far from Christ, who were cut off without hope in darkness, if the Apostle Paul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, wasn't saved and wasn't preserved. Look, clearly, we need all 12 brothers. And there is a message in that for us, just in time for the One Association Conference. Not fighting for your brother's blessing, in fact, might eliminate your blessing. I mean, Haman would have killed everyone if Mordecai, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, did not speak to Esther. Additionally, 
Where would you, how would you know about the blessing given to Abraham had we not had the apostle Paul from the tribe of Benjamin? Do you see how important it is to never see your brothers as expendable? Come on. Well, let's pick up in Isaiah 9. Continuing in the prophets. This is Isaiah 9, 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, somebody say us. Us. A son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. Come on. So let's start with a question. Who is the, to us, a son is given? (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of a silly thought. I know you envisioned as we started reading this, your little old grandmother singing Christmas carols because that's the only time you ever think about Isaiah 9. But it is to the 12 brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel that this son is given. Come on. It is their government that he is enthroned upon. It is that government that will never decrease. The son's government will increase not decrease. His rule requires, somebody say requires? Requires. All 12 brothers. The same 12 brothers that received the promises all the way back in Genesis 49 and in Deuteronomy 33. God promised it to specific brothers and it has to be fulfilled in specific brothers. Yeah. The government of God is expressed in these 12 brothers who are called to become one singular nation that acts as a prince with God. Come on. Amen? Amen. So, saints, when we're considering this government, we're going to go to the book of Chronicles and see that clearly. But again, before we do, we're going to reflect on a psalm. This is Psalm 122, verses 3 through 9. Listen to this. You may have read this in the past, but I can guarantee you didn't understand it. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up. Yes. The tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Saints, has anybody read in the Gospels and realized you're supposed to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? See, the city of Jerusalem is the throne of God. And it is bound firmly together with the twelve tribes, or brothers. It is the only land grant within Israel that is so mixed and so twisted and firmly bound as one unit that it is difficult to tell who it belongs to. It's called the city of David. What tribe is David from? But it's in Benjamin. 
And as the psalm depicts, every single tribe goes up to it and is praying for its peace because all the tribes have an inheritance in a special city called Jerusalem. You may want to remember that as we continue. So they all had an allotment, but every tribe had an allotment in Jerusalem that is the city bound up together with the tribes. Now you may have noticed that the city had thrones in the plural for judgment. You didn't notice that, did you? Thrones, plural. These thrones that proceed from the house of David, but are for all 12 tribes or all 12 brothers. This is Adonai's design and his government on earth. The house of David is the messianic throne, but from the house of David proceeds thrones and the plural for each of the 12 brothers that are the prince with God collectively on earth and form his government. Don't act like you knew that. So take a minute and soak that in. There is a throne of David, but there are thrones that proceed from that throne in the city that is bound up with 12 brothers. Tell me that you're starting to understand. Okay. This should cause each of the 12 brothers to say, Shalom be with you. Look, when we're talking about praying for the peace of Jerusalem, we're talking about the government of God that has 12 thrones. This is for the sake of their brothers and companions because the peace of Jerusalem affects all 12 brothers. Look, we're going to teach you more about that later. But for now, it should be clear to you that you are dependent on your brothers and you have a shared destiny with them. That means... Every man. Somebody say every man. Every man. That means from Paul Rosales to JJ over here, from Justin Butler all the way over to Pastor Wade Sutherland, we must fight for the shalom and blessing of our brothers for the sake of our companions because we are forming one government. We're going to pick up with you in Chronicles and we'll see if we can help the picture become more clear to you because we understand this is a lot to process. Rather than read the chapter, we're 42 minutes in. We're going to just talk through it on a slide. And I promise this will start to be repetitive enough that you will get it. David's government was based on 12. When you survey not only 1 Chronicles 27, but the whole of the Tanakh, you will see every multiple in multiples of 12. Every number that is given. In this chapter, those first 15 verses, he is listing... Specifically, his military commanders. We put them on the screen for you. There are a lot of names in it because they're often giving you the lineage of the military commander. But what is undeniable is there's 12 of them. And those 12 are responsible for 24,000 men under their command. And each of the 12 corresponds to a month of the year. And that is a pattern that happens Throughout the administration of the kingdom of David. It could seem arbitrary to you to just look at the names on the slide. But the pattern will become abundantly clear as you look through the greater volume of scripture. God's government on earth is always based on 12 tribes or 12 brothers. Forming a singular nation that is a prince with God. It's true of the military but it's also true of the civil administration. Consider David's son Solomon for a minute. This is 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 7. Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel. How many? 12. 
who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year. Saints, how many months in a year are there? Solomon is regarded by most as typifying the millennial reign, as a shadow and type of the millennial king and what his kingdom will be like. And as soon as he assumed the throne, he appointed 12 regional governors. Now, did we mention the throne of Solomon? Remember, it is also the throne of David. So David sets up a government and Solomon succeeds him and sits in his throne and in his place. Well, when you're considering Solomon sitting in the throne of David, it really is just an increasing version of it, an increasing of David's government or God's government on earth. Here's the description of David's and now Solomon's throne in 2 Chronicles 9, 17. Say it was David's throne. And now it's Solomon's throne. Now it's Solomon's throne. And thrones have to proceed from it. Second Chronicles 9, 17. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps and a footstool of gold, which were attached to the throne. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrest. While... Twelve lions stood there, one on each end of the step on the six steps. Nothing like it was ever made for any kingdom. Solomon literally ruled the known world on a throne that sat on top of 12 lions that symbolized 12 brothers now made into a prince with God. The 12 tribes of Israel. None were missing. None were expendable, just like your brothers are not expendable. The government of God is based on his rule within and on top of the brotherhood of believers. His throne is supported by the 12 brothers that now make up the prince with God. They are the body. He is the head. They are the 12 thrones. He is enthroned above them and connected with them. Think head and shoulders. Are you getting the picture? So look, if some of this seems hazy to you, I want you to breathe for a minute. Everybody take a deep breath. And let it out. All right, you see a big old smile on my face? Do you know that I love you? Pray for revelation because there's not much else we can do to help you. Ask God to open the eyes of your heart that you may understand what Christ is speaking to you today. And rejoice because we are going to the New Testament in Luke 1, 32. All we've done is law, prophets, writings, and that's all we're going to do for the rest of this. But we're getting in familiar territory for many of you. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house or household of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So guys, just to remind you, set a little context. This is the angel Gabriel speaking. He is announcing the coming arrival of Messiah. And he said that Yeshua would be given the throne of his father, David. More than that, he said that Jesus will reign over the house or household of Jacob, which is comprised of 12 brothers, which is 
the aim of the coming Messiah. The wording is reminiscent of Isaiah 9. It says, of his kingdom, there will be no end. Or you could look at Isaiah 9 and see, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Now, we want to interact with you for just a minute. Take off your Sunday school glasses with the Gospels and just think about this for a second. Did Jesus choose seven men and invest his authority into them? No. Did he choose nine? No. Did he choose ten? No. I wonder if there's a reason for that. Are you seeing that the pattern starts with the throne of David? David's throne comes to Solomon, and then Solomon is enthroned on something very special? Luke 22, let's look at verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus chose 12 Jewish brothers, each of whom would need discipline and restoration from time to time. Yep. He told those 12 brothers that they would sit on exactly 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Just like the original 12 brothers sometimes needed mercy, sometimes needed discipline, but had one joint destiny, we again have someone responsible for the throne of David, taking 12 men who need discipline, who need mercy, need discipleship, and he is promising that they will sit on 12 thrones. Come on. These positions were assigned by Jesus as his father had assigned them to him. In other words, God's government has always been a system of 12 brothers completely submitted to Adonai and they become Adonai's government on earth. And it takes all 12. These blessings have been present since eternity past. Yep. But they are only visible as the brotherhood is reconciled and restored to God. Now that's a key to understanding Romans 11 if you think through it. Yeah, but that's not what we're teaching about today. One more time to make sure you catch this. These blessings, these thrones, were present since eternity past. They were present before Genesis 49 took place. They were present before Deuteronomy 33 took place. But they have been obscured from time to time because of sin. But when Israel, all 12 tribes, are reconciled and restored back to God, these thrones become visible. Now the imagery in Matthew's account of this same event is even more vivid. This is Matthew 19, verse 27 through 28. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. See, Jesus, like Solomon, will sit on the throne of David, the throne of his father. And that throne will be built upon and supported by the 12 thrones of the Jewish brothers that extend from him. 
these 12 Jewish brothers that have been reconciled and restored by Adonai and the sacrifice of his son. They will be his prince with God collectively. Jesus is the head, and they are the body that proceeds from him. Of course, these men did not understand that this blessing was in store for them from the beginning. That's why Peter's asking, what is there in store for us, those who have left everything to follow you? Man, sounds so much like Judah or Reuben or so many brothers that didn't understand the Father's blessing in the beginning. See, the disciples themselves, the twelve, would go through petty rivalries, sinful shortcomings, and even severe stumblings that caused temporary denial of the one true name. But in every case, they were restored. Yes! They were reconciled. Yes! And then they were told to go back and strengthen their other brothers. Yes! You can see Luke 22, verse 32 for that, or the whole chapter of John 21. Are you grabbing hold of that? When they got reconciled to each other, they would still go through stumblings. But when they receive mercy, they are told, go strengthen your brothers. Because they have one collective destiny that can only be achieved with all 12 positions filled properly. Saints, this picture grows in clarity when you read Revelation. And you see that the Father and Jesus share a throne, just like David and Solomon's throne are one and the same. And then we are told that we, somebody say we, we, will share that same throne. The imagery is that Jesus is on the Davidic throne like Solomon was, and that his throne extends to the 12 regional governors or Jewish brothers. The shocking reality is that we Gentiles, if we overcome, can in be included in a participator in that rulership that was designed for the 12 brothers. Go read Revelation 3.21 after this sermon, and it will blow your mind. You've been reading about a promise for an overcomer that you have not understood the gravity of that gift. But that is beyond the scope of our message for today. What we want to do is drill down on a more central and pragmatic issue at hand for us. Can we get practical? Yeah. I mean, have we taught you something? So now we can get practical, right? Mark 3, 13. And he went up on a mountain and called to him. What's that next phrase? He called to him. Who desired them? Yeah. Jesus desired them. And he appointed 12 so that they might be with him and might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Look, when you look at this, Jesus called those that he desired, and he desired 12 Jewish brothers. Just like the history of Israel started with. Come on. There were exactly 12 unique positions that were destined for them, and there had to be 12 because that is the design of God's government on earth. His government is always expressed in 12 brothers acting as a single prince with God. None were expendable. All were needed. If one was missing, it cost the other 11 something horrific. You follow? There must be an inheritance for every one of the 12 Jewish brothers because their destiny is tied together. Now, practically, understand. 
Jesus' desire is for the brothers that share the body of Christ with you, his desire is that they be with him and have authority. And whether or not they engage in that affects you. So you have to fight for their blessing or it definitely takes something away from you. We can get into that more and we're going to. But I want to tell you, I can confidently look and go, hey, brother, if you don't live up to the call of God, he'll replace you. Do you know what I'm not saying? We will all suffer in the interim because you were called to do it and it will take years to raise up somebody else to do it. We need our brothers. All right, somebody say, my father father desires my brothers. brothers. Jesus desired 12 apostles. So this brings up a glaring difficulty. Anybody contemplating it yet in the room? So we know that we must fight for the blessing of our brothers and that our own blessing can only be obtained with our brothers. What happens when a brother will not fight for his or others his other brother's blessings? See, what happens when a brother sells out the others for personal gain? What happens if one of Judah's brothers is committed, determined towards selfish ambition? Do you think people that keep the money bag might be tempted to collect interest? <laughs> Remember, Jesus desired the 12 and he chose them. So a brother who is committed despite that desire to fight against his brother's blessings and his own selfish ambition or could quite literally be called a Judas. Which is like Judah uncorrected. <laughs> Got one letter still wrong. It's the Greek goyim version. Yeah. So let's pick up in Acts 1. And I, I'm, I'm going to be in verse 15. Are y'all still awake? Y'all doing okay? I mean, we're certainly just covering the blatantly well-known, right? In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. <laughs> the company of persons was in all about 120. It's multiple of 12, by the way. And said, brothers, from the 12 tribes, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. See, it is beyond question that Judas had an inheritance in the ministry of Jesus. It is beyond question that Judas was told that he would sit on one of 12 thrones. It is also, somebody say also. Also. Beyond question that Judas failed to fight for his brothers and stand by Jesus through the trials they endured. Judas actually tried to profit off of his brother's misfortune. Let's pick up in verse 18. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akodama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms. Time for another psalm. May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. 
and, and. Somebody say, and. And. Let another take his office. Saints, there we have it. There must be exactly 12 brothers who sit on 12 thrones that support the throne of David. It is not acceptable for there to be a breach in the government of God. If one Jewish brother disinherits himself and will not be reconciled because he seeks to profit off his brothers, well, that kind of man who seeks to profit off his brother's misfortune, he will be replaced with a faithful brother who also meets every qualification. The kingdom of God on earth will be governed by 12 faithful Jewish brothers who fought for one another, who fought for each other's blessings and have Messiah at their head as king. Any man like Judas who will not fight for his brothers, but instead continues to exploit them. Well, he eliminates himself from the kingdom of God and disqualifies himself from the government of God. You know where we've come from and you know where we're going. If that statement didn't wake you up, I don't know what would. Because we've been repenting for nine weeks for not understanding how important this is. Let's pick up in verse 21. So one of the men, somebody say one. One. One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Come on. And they put forward two. Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice, just to keep it fun, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Which of course would bring the total back to. Two men were candidates. But only one could be chosen. Matthias was chosen. And he showed himself to be qualified. When you surveyed the entire chapter of Acts. And you worked through the chronology. It's clear that Matthias had stood faithfully with his brothers through every trial from the baptism of John all the way through the ascension of Jesus. On that note, we don't have time to cover it today. Go read 1 Corinthians 15 and you'll hear Paul enumerate this. That all of the twelve after Judas have been witnessed from the beginning to the ascension and he confirms the right and testimony of Jesus as his government on earth. You probably don't care about the Bible difficulty, but I just throw it out there for you. The chronology doesn't look like Jesus could have appeared to them after Judas has fallen out and Matthias has been chosen. But if you pay careful attention to who is present, every time Jesus does appear, he always had Matthias in mind because there are unnamed disciples and Matthias has to be one of them. Look, he was an eyewitness to the resurrection, and the eleven said so. He took the twelfth apostolic spot, the twelfth throne, the twelfth position of brotherhood. He walked out on the ice and replaced the one who fell away. 
The city of God and the government of God represented by Jerusalem is firmly bound together in 12 Jewish brothers. Consider the imagery from Revelation 21. Just to make sure you're making the connection. We read you a psalm earlier that said Jerusalem was firmly bound together. We told you that every tribe had an inheritance in it. A few of you cheered and were excited. Some of you just looked at us blankly. When we read Revelation 21, I want you to think about how this great city, Jerusalem, is presented. Verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes uh -oh. of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Now, do you think that this is pulled out of nowhere, or is John seeing a vision of what the Tanakh said Jerusalem would be? On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Are you getting it? You know whose name is not written there? You know who else's name? Paul. <laughs> okay, I know all of you want that to be true, but it's not true. It's not. Paul was not one of the 12. We only do that because we don't know what Matthias did, but you also don't know what Thomas did or Bartholomew. God has a place prescribed even for brothers that you may not understand the honor that is due them. They may even receive more honor than those of you that are so obviously talented. Okay? The brotherhood in the government of God is dependent upon all 12 being present, even if he has to replace one to do it. Come on. Do you remember that Jacob had 12 sons? Do you remember that all 12 had preordained blessings that were only visible? When all 12 were reconciled to one another and Adonai, these blessings are now visualized in Revelation as being fulfilled. All 12 tribes make up the city. All 12 apostles form its foundation. The brotherhood is intact because they fought for each other's blessing. No amount of human weakness or sinful failings will ever keep these prophecies from coming about. Hallelujah. If Judas persists, then Matthias will be chosen. But what God said would happen will come about. Church, how important is it that you learn to fight for the blessing of your brother? Oh, come on. It is, in fact, our blessing as well. Because you can't get to your shared common purpose without your brother also getting there. We are one people. We are one city. We are one temple. And we are one brotherhood of believers. We are the one association. Now we probably should close. No, we're not going to. <laughs> I mean, there's no reason to lie while we're preaching. Should is not the same thing as we will. It's an hour and seven minutes and you've come this far with us. I mean, like, 
almost like one of the 12 named Peter saying, you know, we've left everything to follow you. Should we now turn back? Like, we know you have the words of life. We believe that God has a message for us today as we enter the one association that is life for the 12 that make up the brotherhood. You're about to get basketfuls of revelation. Are you ready for John 6? So we're going to John chapter 6. We're going to pick up in verse 8 together. Somebody say 12 brothers when you're actually there. One, like numero uno of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down. Up, <laughs> or Colorado. About 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he gave thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Who gathered up what was left over? How many disciples were there? How many baskets were there? Again, we could preach on this subject all day long. But time will not permit. Not because we're not willing to put you through it, but because we have a long road trip ahead of us. Did you notice that Andrew stepped up in an attempt to help his other 11 Jewish brothers in a testing moment? Look, if you've read John 6 recently, you'll know that Jesus is testing them. He already has in mind what he's going to do. And yeah. it wasn't Peter this time who spoke up. No, it's almost always Peter who steps forward. But in this case, even Peter's like, uh, if I sit here quietly long enough, maybe somebody else will take a turn. And Andrew, Peter's brother, did. To be fair, Andrew was not exactly... Full, as in the like 100% kind of category. 100! Now, more like mm, 45. Not entirely full of faith, but at least he tried. Andrew put yeah, forth. You should be saying amen! Hear me, men of God. Whatever measure of faith you're able to summon, what Andrew put forth, the effort he did put forth, well, that was something that Jesus could multiply. Something that Jesus could work with. He did it because both he and his brothers, well, they were all on the spot being tested. Jesus multiplied Andrew's efforts, taking the five loaves and two fish, and he fed the 5,000. Now, be real with us for a minute. This is usually where preaching on the subject ends. Done. End of sermon. Move to next scripture. Today, we want you to notice that all 12 brothers took home a basketful because one brother stood up for them all with the faith he had. Oh, come on! Now what you usually hear is, you don't have much, but it can multiply by God's touch. Oh, God is able. You're missing something. It only took one brother fighting to help the other 11 and all 12 took home whole basketful. 
Now, we want to make sure you understand the formula, if you will. We have one brother that at best has 50% capacity of faith. Here's what I have, and it is so little. So he presented two statements, one full of faith and one fairly faithless. Here's what I have, but it's probably not good enough. But in our holy recipe here, one brother standing up with the faith that he has to speak on behalf of his other brothers. Well, that is something that will produce a supernatural work. Every one of the brothers takes something home. Saints, this is the kind of miraculous power that we want to be inspired in this room. We want you to understand that there is miraculous power for you in fighting for your brother's blessing. Don't you think that this is a message we need prior to going to the one association? Who am I? I, I, don't, I don't have anything to say. They're pastors. Okay, Andrew. We would like to go home with 12 basketfuls. And we might need the little bit of faith that you have to contribute to, this, to the subject. These guys, look, if they only had five loaves and two fishes that came from a small boy, what did the disciples have none of? Food. But they went home with 12 basketfuls. You have no idea what your contribution to one of the other churches may do in all of the churches. Look, we're going to see how this plays out in the book of Revelation. But I want to take just a minute to highlight it again as one of your pastors. Every man in this room, if you have been born again, spirit-filled, God brought you here and you are being trained, do not believe the lie that you have nothing to give. If you have a few loaves, a few small fish, and can at least summon the faith to have one faithful statement in the midst of your own unbelief, God will work with it. Can you envision the 12 for a minute? Like, like, okay, close your eyes. And if you're already, your eyes are already closed before I said that, then maybe you should just open your eyes. Okay. And your hearts too. <laughs> Let's hell open and swallow you. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was not inspired. That was just me. Close your eyes for a minute and envision 12 men. And when we say names like Gad or Ashtar or Naphtali, can you envision them? Now, you, you can envision Judah because you've been reading about him your whole life. You can envision Joseph because you saw Prince of Egypt. When we do the same thing with the 12 apostles, you can open your eyes now. I want you to understand that you don't know what most of them did. Only eight books in the New Testament were written by members of the 12. I mean, you don't know very much about them. You might even find that you... Don't like some of them very much. Like they got a funny name. They're one or two mentions in the gospel. You don't like what they said or what they did. What we're depriving of ourselves of with that kind of judgment is the unique fruit that God wants to bring from each brother. Come on. Has anybody seen The Chosen? Yeah. Wow. Have any of you watched a message in here more than one? Don't answer that. Look. Yes. Their presentation of Matthew Levi is one of the dorkiest, odd little fellows I've ever seen. I, <laughs> and yet they at least realized that he was needed. You don't get to choose the 12 brothers. God chose them. He chose some of them to be fat, some of them to be short, some of them to be bearded, some of them to be balding. He chose them in all of their uniqueness 
And you have to fight for their blessing if you are going to have one. So Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Man, that's familiar. Yeah. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Saints, the brotherhood is made up of 12 different kinds of men so that it can produce 12 basketfuls or 12 kinds of fruit for the healing of all who are in need. It's not all kinds, Spencer. It's 12 kinds. The 12 thrones of the brotherhood, they are supporting the throne of Messiah, which is the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb. See how they're one and the same between the Father and the Lamb who was slain? These 12 thrones are supporting a throne that is for the healing of the nations. Saints, once again, we just want to tell you blankly, you cannot succeed in ministry without your brother. You cannot succeed in ministry without your brother's even the ones you favor and the ones you do not. This is not just about you two or three. This is about the government of God as it extends through your ministry. So when we say brothers, so many things could come to mind. But I imagine the people sitting in your tough meeting came to mind. Your team formation meet. I want you to understand that what we're doing in that meeting should be scaled up to the church, this church. And what we're doing in this church should be scaled up to the one association of churches. And one day to the one association of churches in many, many nations. That is what it is to have him as the head or on a throne and us participating in 12 thrones. Look, we really do need to close now. But we're not going to. <laughs> I want to tell you about a special time of year that we're in. Okay, we are in Sukkot right now. When you're staring at this slide, let's walk through it just a little bit together. Sukkot is the seventh feast of Yahweh. These feasts were designed to forecast Adonai's redemptive plan for the whole world. But the redemption of the whole world had to start with the 12 tribes. And then it could extend to the nations. Sukkot celebrates the completion of all seven feasts. Since the 12 tribes were now atoned for at Yom Kippur, they were reconciled, they were restored. Then suddenly, the 12 brothers who have now been made right have a revelation that what has happened in them is for all 70 nations to benefit from. Y'all get that? At Sukkot, an increasing number of sacrifices occur through seven days. They reach a total of 70 bulls, and I've preached on it a lot. It's a whole lot of bull. Yep. That's one for every nation in the world. It's not until at Yom Kippur that the 12 brothers are reconciled that they then can see the greater blessing for the whole world. You can read about that in Numbers 30. But the goal of the 12 brothers was to become a prince with God 
and then reconcile the entire world in Messiah as they themselves have been reconciled. Amen. On the eighth day of Sukkot, somebody say eighth day. Eighth day. Water is drawn from the wells of salvation. And that water is poured. It's what? Poured. That water is poured from a golden vessel into 12 earthen vessels. You can read about that in Isaiah 12. And you can know that it is the absolute setting of John 7, which says on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus said this. If any man thirst, let him come and drink of me. He goes on to say, and out of your heart would flow living water. By the way, he said something very similar to the woman at the well, and Pastor Erigina quoted it during our Kaddish. Yeah, while you're contemplating that for just a minute, anybody familiar with the baptism and the Holy Spirit string that you learned in your first year here? John 7, in a commentary style, tells you that he said this, and he's referring to the Holy Spirit, which would later be poured out. You guys tracking with me for a minute? What happens when the Spirit of God is poured out in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2? They receive the power to go from Judea, the 12, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. See, this water ceremony is about in the center of Jerusalem. The rulers, the original 12, receiving the life-giving water and then carrying it to the nations. So let's grab an essential truth. On that great day, on the eighth day, the 12 brothers have to be poured into from the golden vessel before they can then complete the imagery for all the rest of the world. If they're not poured into, they have nothing to give to the rest of the world. Now, somebody say now. Now. Every seven years, there is a special Sukkot, and it is called the Hakel. It means gathering or assembly. Israel observed every seventh year a sabbatical year. That is a year in which no work was done except specific work prescribed by God. So if every seven years you have a special Sabbath year where you rest from your work, in that seventh year, when Sukkot falls on it, it's called the Hakel. Now, when you think through that, which, by the way, is occurring right now, this morning, in Israel, this is a time of the assembly of Israel so that they can come back to their true purpose. They can be poured into from Adonai so that they can then represent salvation to all the rest of the world. Not every Sukkot features this, but the Hakel, they're not doing anything else for an entire year, and this is the last event in the culmination of it. Now, we're bringing that up because this morning is the eighth day of the special Sukkot called Hakel in Israel right now. So we'd like, we would like to illustrate how that may affect the One Association this year. Right, so to talk you through this, in 2015, you can see the One Association was started in a living room. Look, to be frank, this was with a handful of men and basketfuls of hope in what God could do. It was the day a that, handful of men, but basketfuls of hope. It's the day that a few men began to dream about what could be accomplished and to bind each other together as brothers. 
Our first official One Association conference was in 2016, and it was held in Virginia. Our second was in 2017, where it was held in Louisiana. Our third was in 2018, where it was held in Illinois. In 2019 was our fourth conference, which was held in Houston. Our fifth in 2020, that conference was held in Dallas. Our sixth was in 2021, which was a leaders only one association conference in Tennessee. Do you know what we're about to do? Now, in 2022, the One Association in a general full-body conference will be held in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. This year is our seventh year to celebrate this in-gathering and a kind of Sukkot Hakel for all of us. And let's be clear. The One Association was formed so that we could establish 12 springs that would feed the 70 nations. Can I tell you that in 2015, we were not able to plan this? In 2015, we were a ragtag group that was barely warming to the idea that we needed a team between churches. The first time we summoned the faith to really begin to walk in this was in 2016. But you know what Adonai knew the entire time? That he was acting a Gentile church at the same revelation that we needed 12 who would pour into the 70, and he put us on the exact same track as what is happening in Israel today, as of this morning. So we're an hour and 25 minutes, and we are actually going to close. We want to renew and refresh our starting scripture today. You'll remember that we had two questions so that our steps would become crystal clear. The first one was, where have we come from? We've come from repentance over misunderstanding our Father. We now know that He has a blessing for each one of us that can only be rightly seen in fighting for the advancement of our brothers. The second was where we are going. You can see we are going to learn to implement the will of our Father by increasing His government on earth through the unified brotherhood that fights for the blessing of our brothers. Now, keeping in mind that Sukkot, and especially Sukkot Hakel, is a day of pouring into the 12, that they might then go restore the 70 nations. Let's read John 13 one last time. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water. Then he what? Then he poured water. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Those that see this scripture as implementing foot washing are missing the point. There is no record of that practice being implemented in the biblical text, except as a euphemism for ongoing continual faithful service, like a widow known for washing the feet of the saints. Something much deeper is actually going on. 
Peter didn't understand this at first, and I imagine the same could be said for most of us. Jesus is initiating them into a kind of fighting for their brother's blessing that the salvation story is dependent on. They're already each clean. Jesus said so to Peter. But they need a spiritual outpouring for their brother's equipping on a continual basis. This was done to show them what they must learn to do for each other. They would have to pour out for their brother's benefit and their brother's blessing. And in that, they would all be blessed. So the 12 brothers... They have to do this on behalf of Jesus in his absence. He says, I have set you an example. Do as I have done. They would have to do it on behalf of Jesus for each other because he would no longer be there to do it. Before they can ever do it for the larger group of all Israel, it must first take of the living water and cleanse one another. Once they have done that, once they have learned what it is to pour into the brotherhood that Christ himself gave them. Well, then John 13 forecasts that they would be able to bring salvation to the nations. Thanks. What you're practicing here today, what we're on the verge of embarking on, what God has been aiming us at for months now, is the actual daily practice between our brotherhood and our larger brotherhood that is not optional that is not a part of reaching the nations. It is the way that we reach the nations. So let me again give you practical feet to your faith as we talk through this. This Friday, a little bit overwhelmed with all that is ahead of us, a little bit of fear and anticipation over all that may be required of us, all of the things that any ordinary sinful man has to work through. We're present in my heart. But I showed up in our team unity formation meeting and my brothers washed my feet with their words. Brother Nick Aragina reminded me of the impact that I had on him in our very first meeting. And as he was doing it, even though I'm clean, I became more clean, more acquainted with the righteous deeds that God has destined for believers. As Charlie and I began to speak to one another about the maturity of love that has grown between us through the years, it was like washing my feet. As my son looked at me and reminded me of three things that have defined my life that honestly I couldn't have put into words and have forgotten... It did something for me that allows me to minister to my brothers. Come on. I want to be very clear for the most um, literal among us. We are not asking you to walk up and take off somebody's boots and socks and touch their feet. Do you get that? We are not asking for that. What we are asking is that you pour yourself out like Andrew standing up for your brothers, offering what you have that they might take home basketfuls of something. And you will too. Can we show you one last slide? Because we, we didn't like that there were only 11 messages in our series. Because there are 12 brothers. 
So this slide is our confessional. We lied to you. Our last sermon is not today. We have an entire week at the One Association where we will be implementing what we have been learning for the previous 11 weeks. And saints, we're saying, LCM, make your lives a sermon of what it looks like to lay down your life to wash the feet of the saints. You know where you have come from. And you know where you are going. So the clear step that must be taken at the conference is that LCM fights for the blessing of the other churches and their spiritual maintenance by pouring out what you have. So at this point, we want to tell you what your altar call is, what we are asking you to respond to. We're asking you to seek the God of heaven, to cry out to him, to give you revelation, to open the eyes of your heart, to open your eyes to the brothers that are around you, that he might show you specifically how you might pour yourself out to bring salvation and cleansing to those that are around you. The goal is that not one of us leaves this room or leaves Houston without having genuine direction about how we are going to pour ourselves out in the example of Christ because we know where we have come from and we know very specifically in the next few days where we are going. So as we stand, Pastor Parsons is going to begin to lead us in worship. And our rallying cry is not mourning, it's not loss, it's not even contemplation. It's Almighty God, show us how to pour ourselves out that the twelve might reach the nations. Holy Father, we thank you for this divine brotherhood. This brotherhood of believers that you have built around us in your holiness. Lord, we didn't choose you. You chose us and brought us from darkness to light. What we say right now, we recognize the family that you've given us. We recognize that each one of us are dependent upon one another. Lord, even in this body, we are one member of a larger body that you've ordained. Show us how we might pour our lives out as an offering before you, just as you have done, setting us an example, mighty one.